Bootstrapping your business can sometimes feel lonely. Welcome to the Bootstrapped European Entrepreneur Podcast, where you can hear the stories of your peers, as well as the strategies and tactics that have helped them grow their businesses. Your host, Uroj, co-founded a company as a student and led it through the trials and tribulations of bootstrapping to the IPO on the stock exchange. Hi, our guest today is Senat Shantich, CEO and co-founder of Zendev a software development consultancy from Bosnia and Herzegovina. We talk about his first entrepreneurial projects in Sweden, which still provide him with passive income, what led him to start a business in Bosnia and Herzegovina and how he went about it, and the reasons behind and the approach they took to the development of their own products. I hope you will enjoy this episode. Hi, Senat. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really happy to host you. So what actually got you on entrepreneurial path? Well, I mean, I, I think it just started from an early age. For whatever reason, I felt that I needed to have that creative control over what it was that I was creating. So for the people that don't know my background story, I'm born in Bosnia Herzegovina in 88. And as a kid in 93, my parents moved to Sweden. So I grew up my entire life in Sweden, basically. And I studied software engineering there. And as soon as I enrolled into that college, I could see in which direction that college was preparing us to go. So it was basically to the big industry in Sweden, Gothenburg, which is logical. It's what you would expect of a college, right, to prepare you for the industry. It actually makes sense, let's say, not for academia. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everybody says that the college is there to connect the industry with the academia, which makes sense. But for me, I didn't like the idea of going to, you know, especially Volvo is a big player in Gothenburg where, where I grew up. And I didn't like the idea of going to a company that already employs thousands and thousands of people. So I wanted to create something that's a lot smaller, primarily with the uh, for the reason that I would be able to have full creative control on what it is that I was creating, right? Okay, interesting. Just to share a little bit, let's say, yeah. I'm an entrepreneur because in the high school, when we had like oblig- obligatory, let's say, one week practice in the company, you know, some company, I found out that I really, really don't like, let's say, hierarchies. Uh, because <laughs> and I would be a bad employee. So for me, it was like in the high school, I noticed, okay, I could not be an employee because I don't, I dislike somebody telling me what to do if I don't respect them really, really, really much. Yeah, that, I think we're very similar in that sense. And uh, you, you didn't, didn't want to get stuck into that. And the, the easiest way to get around it is to build your own thing. Then, uh, But then obviously you're fully responsible for your own success, yeah. but you have everything, you know, the control in your hands. So it's kind of like the same starting point for me there. So as soon as I got into college, I started creating my own websites, like small, simple services with the ambition that once I finish college, I hopefully don't have to get employed, right? So that I would be making enough of an income through these services to not have to get employed. So was this influenced by Tim Ferriss' for our work week or something like that? I did read read it, but I was never into the whole idea of working four hours uh, a week. Uh, <laughs> or maybe maybe I was, but the irony is, you know, all the people that have read that book seem to work 12 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the irony of that book. Uh, but, but I do remember myself and my friends reading that early on in college, thinking that it would be so easy to create this, you know, passive income to build a freedom, but it never is. 
So I think for the first two and a half years, as I was creating these services, I made maybe like $500 in total of income because they just kept failing and failing. And the way that I was creating them was that I was very focused on uh, search engine optimization. Uh, and the reason for that was because, you know, when you're a student, you don't have a lot of money for marketing. So you have to get really good at getting organic traffic straight from Google. It took a few years and I don't remember if it was my fifth or sixth website that actually became the first really big hit. That was also a very simple website, a very simple service where you enter any word you want and you get a hundred examples of how to use that word in a sentence. That's, you know, the essence of the application. Built it first for a Swedish market, had five or 6,000 visitors daily for that. And then I knew I had to scale that to, to a bigger market, to, you know, the English, French, German markets as well. So I created a new website for the bigger markets. And that had over, at its peak, over 100,000 visitors every day. Uh, and kind of with that website, I got over that hurdle, which was to, to have enough of an income to be able to live off of AdSense just from the clicks on the ads. Can I just ask you, uh, when you describe the service, it's obvious, let's say, that it's really useful. Mm. But to me, let's say, the idea to create something like that, it's not obvious, let's say. So mm. how did... Yeah, let me give you the background to how I got to that idea, right? So I started by creating these first websites. The absolute first like dynamic website that I created in was a website, if you translate it to English, it's like yourdiagnose.com, basically. So it's a website, you go in, you enter your symptoms, and it gives you your diagnose. I was 19 years old. <laughs> so it's like, I'm sure a lot of doctors would not approve of my methodology and my algorithm. But what I learned through that was like a PHP, MySQL, and these things. And then when I was at college, obviously that wasn't making enough of in, uh, an income. And there, were, there was a person that came uh, with an ad to our college. They were looking for a PHP developer to do a little bit of consultancy on their website. And it was a website that was very famous even then in Sweden. It's called uh, synonyma.se. It's basically like synonyms.com. So you enter a word and you get the synonyms for that word. And I, was, I, I did work for them and I worked for a few years with them. But what I saw there was that, you know, you, you could create something that was so simple. It was very simple in the sense that you enter a word, you get the synonyms for it. And then it's basically focused on SEO, everything, you know, to, uh, so that whenever somebody says like synonyms to this specific word, you're the one that ranks. And what I learned to that company is that people don't come to websites in the sense that they enter it into the URL synonyms.se. What they really do is they Google the, the direct thing that they need an answer to. And then we, you have what we in SEO call the long tail. So every word is indexed by Google and that's how you drive a lot of traffic. So just by learning that and seeing how well this was working for them, I was kind of inspired to do something similar. I didn't have the license that they had to this specific like lexicon, which was the base of their product. And I started actively thinking, okay, what can I make that's similar? That's maybe also educational, also scalable in the same sense. And that's kind of how this idea got born. I realized that, okay, sentences, that's something that, you know, you might want examples of. And I could see that in Sweden, there were no websites doing this currently. So the first thing I did, obviously, was to Google it in English to see that if there was an English alternative. And there was, which was kind of a proof of concept for me that, you know, this works in other markets. Let me try this on the Swedish market. And I had enough programming skills to, you know, download a thousand EPUB books and, you know, create scripts that created my database in the background that was the essence of this application and put it up in English, I'm sorry, in Swedish. And I saw that. And when I saw that it worked, then I wanted to go and compete on those bigger markets that already had alternatives for this as well. And uh, the way to do that in SEO is obviously you can do as 
much on-site optimization on your website that you know a lot of the other competitors have done as well. But for, to be able to drive traffic through that, you need a lot of link power. So I went to Flippa.com, and uh, back then this was a lot of money, but I spent twelve thousand dollars to buy a website just for its what we call link juice that it had a lot of link power to it, and then built this service on top of that URL that already had a lot of domain authority. And it was a risk, but I'm really happy that I took that risk because here we are. This is probably eight years ago, and I'm still making passive income off of a website that I built back then. And yeah, that's kind of how I got into this whole thing. And then I had the opportunity to travel to the United States as I was finishing my college. So I spent a year there, got even more infected with the whole startup bug, if you will, because I spent a year in the San Francisco in the whole environment mindset there. Any coffee shop you go to, somebody's working on their startup and their company and so on. So I was even more inspired by the, the idea was still to keep going with these websites once I came, came back to Sweden. But when I did come back, there's kind of this thing where you, when you have Balkan parents, they always insist that you should maximize your education. That's where it is for them. They said, aren't you going to get your master's degree? And I said, I am interested in that, but I don't see the purpose of going any further in the IT direction. So I entered into a master's education that's called entrepreneurship and business design because I wanted to learn much more about that uh, space. So I did two years there. It was a great education. It was one year of theoretical studies and the second year is an incubator. So they put us in groups of three and we were really starting our own companies uh, during that year. It was a great experience. And uh, throughout that, my professor contacted me as well because he was asking around at the college you know, who, who has a strong background in IT because not all the people that were at that master's degree were from the IT side. You know, there were people from industrial economy, mechanical engineers and this and that all there to learn about entrepreneurship. And the people at the college pointed to me, you should talk to Sanad. And uh, we talked a little bit and he was already a proven entrepreneur in Gothenburg. So, you know, he had a lot of authority in that sense. And he asked me if I wanted to be a part uh, of his startup, that he had an idea for a mobile application that he wanted to create for schools in Sweden. And in that sense, to have him as a mentor, I couldn't pass up on that opportunity. This was uh, 2013, 14 approximately. I jumped on that venture in Gothenburg, Sweden, and uh, we started creating this mobile application, which is a company that's actually still up and running in Gothenburg, Sweden. But for me personally, after about three years, it got a little bit monotonous. I was doing the backend development in this application and I didn't feel like I had the personal development uh, at that point after three years that I wanted. And so um, the API course didn't talk back to you, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it was kind of like uh, in the beginning, it's very exciting, but you know, when you're doing so many iterations for one, two, three years, after a while, I didn't feel like there was uh, space enough for me to evolve there. And maybe the company wasn't quite going in the direction that I, I had wanted. And we parted. We still have a good relationship when these things arise. It's not that weird, right, that people perhaps have different visions in which you want to go. And in the situation that I found myself in uh, then was that, okay, I started thinking about what other alternatives do I have? I still didn't want to go uh, get employed, uh, like be uh, in the bigger industries. One alternative I had was to just continue with these websites that I had was already, already creating. And uh, what I had thought about for years already at that point was the idea of moving back to Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was the, the, the country that I was from, obviously. And the connection, just so that people know that I had with Bosnia all of these years, is uh, like a lot of our diaspora. I would spend our summers here and I enjoyed the time that I would spend in Mostad. 
my brother had moved to Bosnia and Herzegovina two years before me, so he was, you know, really liking the uh, his life basically here, and was telling me like, I'm sure if I could do it with a background in economy, you with a background in IT, it has to be really easy for you to do this, basically move back. I decided in 2016 that I was gonna do that. And obviously the easiest thing here was just continue to live off of these websites that I had already created that were generating enough revenue and continue working on those. But I was a bit worried that if I did that, that I would be in a situation that I would just isolate myself from the society where I'm living in, basically, because I could already recognize what it was looking like my life in Sweden, because, you know, it was a one man show, these websites. So you would sit and you hack and you don't have too much interaction with anybody. And in a sense, even in Sweden, it got a little bit lonely to do that. And I didn't want to, uh, you know, move to a country where I didn't grow up, uh, where I you know, didn't go to school and have a community and do that. And the other obvious alternative was perhaps to start a consultancy, right? That's what a lot of the people that move back to, to the Balkans do. And uh, we already had so many people during that period that uh, we had a company in Sweden that asked me, Sanat, can you program this for me? Can you program this? I never did because I was focused on my own company. But I figured, you know, if we turn the coin on this and start taking on those opportunities, can we create a company out of that? And I went with that pitch to my friend Nicola that I had known basically my entire life in Sweden. And we played basketball when we were kids together. When I went to the U.S., he, he went to the U.S. as well. He lived in San Jose during that period. And that was about a bit more than an hour south of San Francisco. So we spent a lot of time together there as well. There as well. And he actually stayed in the United States for three years. But at this point, he had come back to Sweden as well and was working for a company. And we had always talked about doing something on the Balkans because Nicola's dad is from Montenegro as well. And uh, so I pitched the idea to him that, you know, I would move to Mostad to create an organization and if he could focus on doing sales in Gothenburg. And this was in late 2016. So um, there wasn't much more vision than that, to be honest. It was just like trying to make the obvious connections and try to get any kind of work that we could to do any kind of services for anybody, basically. And then we figured, let's start like that and we'll figure out how to narrow our pitch later on. I think this this is uh, really smart. I'd say it's the bootstrap, bootstrappers way. It's also, it was also similar for us. We started already at college. And at the beginning, you just learn the business side, technology and everything else. And then through some years, in my experience, let's say, then you get more specialized, more skilled, and maybe you understand the technology better. And you got the ideas how the technology can solve real life problems, let's say. Absolutely. And I mean, I think even then I was uh, very inspired by the Lean Startup book by Eric Reyes and just being aware that there's so many questions to which I don't have the answer to. I, I have no idea what the IT scene in Bosnia and Herzegovina looks like. And I, I figured what are the minimal steps that we need to take to get, you know, through that first iteration loop to find out, okay, this is what the market looks like. All right, this is what's, you know, what's the need of the market that we're trying to sell to and so on. And I think Nikola is a lot of that mindset as well. And it's a mindset that, you know, in some, in some instances is really good because it gets you going. You don't overthink things and overanalyze. But then in other times it can come to bite you back because you try to move forward too fast and uh, not think things through enough sometimes and uh, think your strategy through. But I think generally in the life of entrepreneurship, it's better to get started a little bit uh, too unprepared rather than too prepared, basically. So, you know, you get, you get to your, um, better to, to be 
on the ball too early than too late. Yeah, because there's also one other thing. Let's say there's always stuff that you don't know and you can't take into consideration when making decisions, let's say. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, it's really interesting. One of my co-founders taught me that, let's say, because when we, we were discussing our first acquisition and we are almost deciding that we will not do it, let's say, because there's a lot of risk and so on. And then he asked the question, okay, guys, but what are the opportunities that will open to us when we will be two times bigger? Can anybody answer this question? And we said, no, okay, but there probably we are the opportunities. And at the end, this was DHH was this opportunity, let's say, that actually was the biggest success of my business career. But yeah, so it's better to err on the side of being too active than being too cautious, let's say. I agree 100%. And it just seems that like the bigger the company grows, the more you perhaps you know that the impact of the decisions that you're going to make is going to be bigger. And I think that's what slows down people later on because, you know, when there's nobody employed, it's like the heck with it, let's just go, go, go. But then at some point you, you start being aware that, you know, if there's 10 people in my company, 20, 50, 100 people in my company, you know, the decisions that I make are going to have a bigger impact. And that's what tends to slow the processes down. I think that a few years into it for people, to some extent, rightfully so. Yeah, yeah but I don't know. Let's say I, I remember let's say my strategy of dealing with this was that I, at least for a couple of times per year, I visualized, let's say that I made a mistake. I made the wrong decision as a CEO. And then I have to tell everybody that, look, the company is broke and let's say you have to find a new job. So I went to this in my head. It was like half an hour, uh, let's say ritual. And it helped. It really helped to be, let's say, to stay aggressive and so on, because at the end, we are still quite young. It's not so bad for them. Let's say they are in an industry that they can have, get new jobs quite easily. And it helps, uh, let's say, to not give in to the fear, let's say, or to the responsibility and so on. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. Way to go. Uh, and I, lo- I love that you had a half-hour talk with yourself. <laughs> if everything goes to hell, the vision that I just sold to the company doesn't work. This is how I'm going to explain. Like, with the information that I had, this was the decision that I can make. And that's that, basically. So, okay, you moved back. How did you then start it? So you get the project right away. You were able to sell in Sina. So what happened was basically when I was still in Sweden, that first day that I had the conversation with Nicola that, that, I was, uh, that we wanted to start a company, the day after my old karate instructor, I did karate for a few years in, in Sweden, actually contacted me and asked me, like he had heard that I was a solid PHP developer and he, he needed a PHP developer and asked me if I wanted to come and work for him. Obviously, I had other plans in mind, so Nicola and I booked a coffee with him literally like two days after that and um, told him uh, that's not of interest for me, but we're starting our own consultancy right now, so if you want to be our first client, you know, that would be great. And he said, I can, but I can't wait for you guys, you know, three months, six months to get everything in order. We need to start like a week from now. And through some, you know, miracles and people that I basically found over the internet, <laughs> uh, we employed them to be the first three people in Zendev. And they started working out of the Mostad office very, very fast. And I and Nicola were still programming for this client um, that whole first month because I had a leave period in my own company when I quit, you know, that I had to pull through. So it was like I was working for that company from eight to five and then five to 12, I was programming for this first client. So after a month, I just remember remember being really, really tired, but you know, it was done. So I felt like, all right, it was worth that investment because now we have some starting point with this client. We have three people that are employed. 
And I packed my bags with my dad in my car because I needed a car in Bosnia Herzegovina, and he was kind enough to uh, to give me his car. And we just sat in the car, and we were going to drive. I remember that it was it was nighttime because we were we had to catch the night ship from Sweden to Denmark. And in the car, that client calls us basically and says, you know, I know I told you guys I need three developers, but I don't think I really need three developers. I think I need one at like 80% of his full capacity. So it was like, it was a really horrible ride to Bosnia-Herzegovina because, you know, you know, you have to come down to these people who had quit their jobs in their current company only to tell them like, yeah, we kind of don't have anything going for us right now. And yeah, I just remember it being dark in every sense of the word. So it was very stressful right from the get go. And then I started pulling on all the connections that I could, especially from this master's degree. I contacted all the people like that had gone into the industry now and asked, you know, does anybody have any kind of work that we can do basically at this point to be able to cover people's salaries? And we got like minor jobs and this and that. And, you know, and that's how it starts. I feel like early on, we were ready to take on anything that anybody needed, everything from, you know, a small WordPress website to this and that. We had one um, client that was in Australia and uh, he was like, yeah, you know, my working hours are different tonight. Can you you come up at five o'clock for our morning meetings. And it was like, it was kind of like, he knew that he could push like that because we didn't have any alternative. But I was like, heck, all right, I'll be up at five o'clock in the morning for our morning meetings. And, you know, you, you have to take a lot of that early on in the company before you, you build that track record and that brand so that you are able to attract bigger clients. And what we started doing very early on, Nikolai and myself, when we did have these people on the bench was to uh, create these kind of websites um, that him and I were already creating, you know, the SEO play basically. Because Nicola, in the same way that I had enough passive income to be able to live off of, Nicola and I did these things together. So he had that as well. We would always like communicate, okay, this is what I'm doing, what are you doing? So we learned a lot from each other. And then we started creating those kind of services, uh, which actually, you know, make a little bit of income for ourselves. But it was very tough to create these kind of products early on because. You know, whenever you go with the mindset, you know, maybe you have a company that's five to seven people employed and you're thinking, okay, while they're on the bench, we're going to create these products. And then when we're able to sell them, we're we'll start selling them. So by on the bench, you mean that today you didn't have any project uh, by paid clients? Exactly. Exactly. In that sense. But what became tough was like people would be on the bench for a month and, you know, the project would get half finished and then somebody else would come on the bench and they needed to take that over. It was a mess basically because, you know, no, you didn't know who was on what and you would, you, in a lot of occasions, we didn't complete those projects. So we said at some point, you know, let's leave the product thing on the side for a while. Let's try to develop our consultancy so that that's working and that we're generating enough of income off of this. And then we'll come back to the products when we have enough revenue and enough profit to be actually to be able to create entire teams that are 100% focused on these products. So that's what we did for about two years. We only went on the consulting side of things, always with the ambition to come back to, to building the products, bootstrapping them. So did this ambition of building the products, because you mentioned in the beginning, it was just the idea of consultancy, but when did this ambition came about? Let's yeah, I think it's just like we've all, all, always had that bug, Nicola and myself, so we can never let it go, basically. So it was always coming back, oh, maybe we should build this, maybe we should build this, even though it was early on focused on the consulting side of things. But we always saw it as, to some extent, from a very early phase that like we, in the long run, just doing consultancy 
is not what we're the most passionate about. That's not to say that it's a bad business model. You know, either there are fantastic business opportunities going all the way in that as well. But we, you know how it is. You try to create the company that you would enjoy working in, basically. And we wanted to create products. Yeah, it resonates with me because we also had like a web agency or consultancy or development agents. Let's say it, it was different iterations through the lifetime. But I still distinctly remember there are just two states, let's say. It's either uh, we have uh, too few people or we have too few projects. It's uh... <laughs> Exactly. That, that's the entire storyline of all of consulting, basically. You're, you're, you're in one of those two issues and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, and you're struggling, and each one is a problem, and and it just gets like more and more intense. I would say maybe after two years, we started getting into that direction of we're too few people, and then you know you need to employ faster and faster, and we we're really are growing fast. We you know grown 100 from last year, but uh, we saw that the entire industry in Bosnia Herzegovina, in one way or another was almost just that, a consultancy, everybody doing outsourcing. When everybody's doing that and you have a market that in its entirety is maybe five to 6,000 people in IT in Bosnia-Herzegovina, it just becomes this uh, battle that, you know, who's going to get you know, the most people to their company that are of quality. And the entire focus starts shifting to that, which is just not that, it's just not that fun to only think about, you know, how am I going to grow my business and attract the, the best people? And what you have is a mesh of people just going between companies. We're not really doing too much to push the industry forward in its entirety. I think, you know, the, the phases that we have gone through here in Bosnia to begin our crucial. And I think every country does that. I talked to Sebastian, an entrepreneur from Poland the other day, and he has a similar story to mine where he moved back from Germany to Poland in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, they did a lot of outsourcing for Germany during that period. And he says, like, those are the phases that you go through early on. You're just an outsourcing alternative. But once you're doing that outsourcing, you learn a lot about development, product development and so on. And at some point, people start turning towards that direction of creating their, their own products. And that's what you see right now in Poland. And he says, you know, Bosnia and Tegrina is maybe at that phase right now that they can start doing that. And I'm really trying to push in that direction as well, because... I think it will be better for the uh, industry in its entirety because we don't won't all just try to grow with the number of people that we employ just like heavily focused on that because that's what, how consultancies grow. But rather, you know, you can create a great company, a great product with a team of 20, 30 people. You don't have to focus as much on just getting the next person and the next person. So I think it would be better for our entire industry to start thinking in that manner. And to be able to do that, you have to be able and willing to take that alternative cost, right? Because you know that there's the easy money, which is, you know, sell people on an hourly basis for their services and make a profit off of that. And, you know, then you can push the salaries. What happens for us as a company, because we do take the approach that you know, we're going to reinvest this money into, uh, into our products, automatically you can't compete in the same sense with the top salaries, right? Because you're taking off of the top and reinvesting back in the company. And we thought a lot about, okay, you know, what, what does this mean? If we want to create our own products and we're going to tell our people, you know, you can't have optimal salaries right now because we need to reinvest it. I wanted to have everybody feel like, all right, we're in the same boat if we're going to do this, right? Maybe we are uh, not as competitive in our salaries, but let's have people feel the benefits of what it's going to look like if we actually uh, make this happen. So what we introduced last year was a profit sharing model 
where 50% of all the profits, and that's between everything, between the consulting, all the, um, the products that we're building, 50% of all the dividends that are, that are given out from these companies are going to be given back to the people that are involved in this entire ecosystem, basically, as we call it, because, you know, the, the, and it, it was a, an idea to make it feel more like a community. It's an unusual concept. I don't know that uh, there's been too many other uh, companies that have gone in this direction, but it's one direction that we felt like it made sense to present it like that to people. And the way that people have responded to that in our uh, company has been very positive as well, because they, they know that we're pretty putting our money where our mouth is right now. So, you know, let's all pull together now to make these um, products successful as they possibly can be. So what's the size of Zendev at the moment, let's say? Uh, Zendev, we are just under 70 people in the company right now. And I would say on the products that we focus on right now, there's probably, I think, 12 people that are working uh, full-time just on the products that we're creating. So almost 20%. Impressive, let's say. Yeah, yeah. So you grew the company to the size where cash flow allows you, let's say, to invest in products. Uh, but a lot of times there's also this other challenge of getting good product ideas. So how did you approach that? Yeah, so there, there's basically two variants that you can go there. Either it's going to come from our side or there's going to be somebody that acts the develop, uh, business developer uh, that's outside of the company. And we have both variants. We have, for example, one product that we call Robinize, which is an SEO content optimization tool that's built, let's say, 100% in-house. It's a joint venture between us and another SEO company here in uh, Mostar, our home city. And that's entirely basically out of you know, mine and Nicolas' head because we've been so many years in the SEO industry and we know what needs to be created. And that's how we always approach these products. There has to be one person. So why, why joint venture then, if it's your idea? Yeah, uh, so we did it with, uh, it was kind of like how many heads can we collect that are very, very competent in this. And it was us, and there's only one guy basically in all of Bosnia-Herzegovina that I would you know consider for this project with us. And he has another company, it's called Alviral. And it, He's very, very focused on SEO content writing. He has a company that employs uh, almost 50 content writers and they don't work as an agency. They only work internally on their own websites, with, which drive, I think, over 6 million organic visitors uh, every month. And, you know, they make a great, great living off of that. So through that, I got to know uh, Hassan, what is it, what it is that he does. And he was even more into using the kinds of products that we wanted to build here. So we were basically building an alternative to what their primary tool for, for content writing was. And I knew that, you know, because they've been in this for so many years, they're, they're both the perfect, like, first client for this, you know, somebody to talk to, and also just very experienced. And I said, Hassan, maybe we should do this together because I think, you know, I have a lot of background in this, you have a lot of background in this, and there's not many other alternatives. And I also told him, I'm pretty sure that either of us could probably create this on our own, but the industry is not that huge in Bosnia to go in and start off with. And I want to start collaborating with people and creating partnerships at an early phase. You know, maybe this is the first product that we're creating. Maybe down the line, there's going to be something else, but just tie up with good people in the industry early on. And we both agreed that we wanted that approach. So we did that together and it's a simple like 50 50 on everything you know 50 50 on the cost 50 50 on the profits and everything so uh, a relatively simple model i would say the other uh, variant that we have is that 
we have on one of our products, which is called Avenue, which is a research tool for yeah for researchers, basically a note-keeping tool, tool for researchers rather. There we have uh, my friend from Sweden who is did his PhD at the same university that, that I was studying at Chalmers. And he had this experience of what it was like to be a PhD student and the tools that they were using. And he didn't feel like there was anything adequate for PhD students specifically, right? So he had domain expertise in that, and he understood exactly what was required for them. So we went into a joint venture with him where we would, we would do the tech side of things, and he would focus on getting th- this out to the university. So that's another alternative where you know it's a joint venture between us. And we still haven't like figured out a pattern uh, if we're only going to go in one direction or the other. Right now, we're trying different alternatives, but if any kind of startup is, is going to work, it needs to have a business developer at the top that's very, very aware of that industry that we're trying to go into at any point. Uh, for us, it was SEO. For them, it was uh, into note-keeping tools and uh, for PhD students. And yeah. Uh, may I ask you, let's say, how do you solve the problem of commitment, uh, let's say, in a joint venture? I mean, there's always somebody that's like leading the project. So if we talk about the, the research tool at this point, the business developer, uh, Abdelisak, who, who, who is the PhD student, he's gotten that responsibility that, okay, if we invest money, it's upon you to be able to do the sales for this to move forward. And it's definitely in his interest to get to that. So the way that we approach it is that we set KPIs on different milestones. Like if we do development for six months, all right, this is what we can deliver on that. And then there's a period where we expect this to happen. You would always, of course, want for people that are involved in in it to have intrinsic motivation to make it a success. But I think it's also very important when you're going in with cash to, to understand what are the expectations on both sides. So, you know, if we on the tech side have KPIs of this within the first two months, we're investing in this way, then there's other KPIs on the business development side of things as well. And uh, that's kind of how we try to figure that out. And I think, you know, moving forward right now, I'm acting CEO of Robinize and moving things forward. And it is very tough to balance between Zendev and being the CEO of one of the products that we're creating. And at some point, somebody will have to take over that position. And we really haven't gotten to that point right now where somebody has to take over a position like that. But it will be a challenge for the reason that you mentioned, Aaron. That's where our conversations are moving around and the idea of, okay, you know, probably you have to give that person some sort of equity ownership. Uh, You have to find the right person with the right competencies to take over a position like that as well. But you're absolutely right in the sense that somebody has to be the person that's actually driving this forward, even though it is a joint venture between two other companies. No, because I remember, let's say, when we were start, just starting out, let's say, I believe that one of our true, two or three biggest failure was like the deal is, you will develop it and then we will sell it, let's say. And yes, we did develop it, but there were no sales, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the, the primary thing there is to, uh, I think you have to force the side that is going out and selling to sell before there is a product, because, you know, I think you need to prove each other to each other simultaneously right that you're, you're doing your part so the you know go out with powerpoint slides and create these connections I, I think you need to have expectations even before the sales are being done that's our experience at least whenever somebody's been, been suggesting that they would be sidelined until you know the product is finished that that's never worked out basically so you know you you can see early on if someone is a go-getter and you know creating the connections before the application is actually finished and uh, 
that's where a lot of people come in with different mentalities. They're like, oh, I can't sell something that I, I don't know 100% that works. So it's like tough luck then. Like this is what the world looks like right now. No, you can't wait for something to be 100% finished to then tr- uh, try to try it out if you can do sales for it. And, and that's the approach that we have in our company as well, that we expect the people that want to act business developers, sales and so on to start doing things in parallel while, while we are developing. Okay. Let's say you manage that you are now CEO of both Zendev and Robinize. So how do you manage to balance between these two roles? Because these are two different kinds of organization. One is project-based, and Robinize is probably more, if it's SaaS, let's say startup, it's becoming it's becoming process-based, let's say. So there are processes to be set up, and let's say they continuously improve and so on. So how do you balance these, these two mindsets? Yeah. Well, one way that I approach Robinize is that to to some extent, it is an education for me as well, how to build a SaaS product. I've built other types of products before. We talked about, you know, the simple services and this and that, but I don't feel like I've proven myself in the sense that I've created a very successful SaaS product. Even the company that we had in Sweden, it was a SaaS as well, but not in the same sense that this was because you were selling, selling to uh, municipalities in Sweden, basically, which is an entirely different variant than actual sales to to, 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 to the private sector. So uh, I wanted to go through this entire process with Robinize to learn as much as I possibly can about this process, not just for the success of Robinize, but also then if I need to act advisor to people that are starting SaaS businesses within our company, I need to have as much experience as possible in this. So it is a tough balance. And the way that I do it is that I, I read a sickening amount of literature, <laughs> basically. Uh, and I try to educate myself while I'm doing these things, right? So I, I try to alleviate, maybe I, I spend, I would say probably 25 to 30% of my time on Robinize during a week and 70% still on Zendev. Uh, and I try to be as effective as I can and try to, I have a person that does operations in Robinize. So anything that I feel like I don't have to do, I try to put on that person so they do that for me. And obviously the developers are doing their part. But then I try to go through that process as as educationally purposed as I possibly can because two years down the line when somebody starts a new startup in Zendev, we need to be able to have some sort of you know advisory board where we can help people with these things. It's a very it's a very different experience working on what I'm working in Robinize right now versus what I'm doing in Zendev because in Zendev, at this point that the company is right now, it's becoming quite operational. While Robinize is still very much in the creative process, like you're trying to learn how, trying to and trying to find a product market fit and so on. And like one of the things that we learned through Robinize, and one of the things that I learned a lot about software as a service sales is, I used to think that you know you create your landing page, and you know you have a nice pitch on that, you have a video that demonstrates the product in a minute, and you know this is going to convert to users. What we learned was that you know very little SaaS sales for B2B works like that. You know, you need to have a demo. And once we understood that and we went in the direction that we started doing demos, we we saw that, you know, now all of a sudden we are selling in 70% of the meetings that we have. So we have a fantastic product, but whenever we ask our clients, did you understand based off of our landing page that this is the service that we offer? It's always no. So <laughs> it, it taught us a few things. It taught us about, you know, we need to uh, simplify how we communicate our message on our landing page, but also accept that this is the kind of software that is sold through a demo, basically. And that's not true for every SaaS, but for the kind that we're uh, creating right now, we needed to do that. So that's the kind of process that's, that we're trying to learn how to do customer success and so on. And uh, yeah, that, that's how I try to balance it. I always think like, 
whenever I think I have too much on my plate right now, I try to think that, you know, Elon Musk is trying to go to Mars and <laughs> create a, the, the next, you know, the biggest company in the world in Tesla and so on. So I figure, you know, there are ways to balance this, but it, it is a cognitive shift whenever you have to go from, you know, what it is that we're doing is end up to what it is that we're doing in Robinize and so on. Yeah. Let's see. As you mentioned, let's say the first big challenge in my mind for every startup is to get to a repeatable sales process, let's say. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I mean, we're still at the stage in Robinize where we definitely have our first clients, but we're still in the philosophy like uh, of creating things that don't scale at this point. We're trying to learn more about our own product with our first clients. And whenever you, now that we have learned that, you know, this is a product that you sell through a demo, it changes everything. It changes the pricing model because, you know, if you need a person that sits down a half an hour with every client to show them how, how the, the product works, what does that mean for our pricing model, right? We, if we thought that this would work in the sense that, you know, if we put in X amount of money into Y, it would mean Y amount of outcome because people register and start using our product. Now we know that that won't work like that. And then we have to rethink our entire pricing model. So, you know, you're learning through that. And whenever we, when we come to that point that we realize that, then I think it will come to that, that you, we need to figure out a, like you said, a repeatable process of how to do sales for this product. And that probably involves the marketing side of things as well. How are you going to bring in those uh, leads uh, repeatedly? Because the first, uh, I would say maybe I had tw about 20 demo meetings with the different clients came from me just posting on LinkedIn. Okay, we have this new product. If anybody feels that, you know, this is interesting for them. And that's how we got those first 20. And we learned a, a ton through that process of actually doing it like that. Obviously, it's not scalable. I can't go every three weeks and put out on LinkedIn, hey, does anybody want to demo the, the, the product? But at this early phase, this is how, how we're going to have to do it. And then we're going to have to try to figure out, all right, what are the next steps in our marketing to be able to drive more people to our website to register for a demo? So you mentioned in passing let's in our discussion that if somebody starts another startup in two years time is this actually a goal that you have like one startup each two years or uh, i have a goal for there to be a more of a startup mindset right I j i've just seen that it, there's a few things missing you know we have had incubators and things like that here in bosnia Herzegovina, but not a lot of things have come out of these incubators and to some extent they've uh, basically been shut down and i've been trying to figure out why is that happening? And there are a few reasons, but one of the primary reasons is that there is a lack of know-how in business development side of things. Because what we were talking about earlier with them consulting for so many years that, you know, fantastic developers, but don't know how to create companies, basically. And what we're doing here is kind of like uh, something in between those two worlds. I, I realized that for us to be able to create that uh, within our company, we need to educate these people in that as well. And uh, it would be the closest thing to starting your own company to start a project, you know, a product through Zendev. I don't have anything against the idea that, you know, people learn a lot about this through our company and then go off to create their own startups. I would love for that and, you know, for them to have successful startups. But I, I'm trying to bridge the gap of, you know, where people are right, are right now in that they're trying to start startups and nothing is happening. Basically, they're failing uh, for various reasons. Maybe don't. A lot of them think it's because they don't have, uh, you know, angel funding or VC funding in Bosnia and Herzegovina. But the reality is, you know, the stages that they fail at, most people wouldn't invest anyway because, you know, you've proven no traction. You don't have anything to show for it. I mean, if we look at what we've done here in, with Avid Note and even Robin Eyes, people are coming to us, seeing what, what it is that we've done and offering angel money, VC money and so on. 
And it doesn't matter that we're based in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I think a lot of people are so focused on that there's no VC money. Like, think international. You don't have to think of a, a, an angel network in Bosnia and Herzegovina, even though there is one starting right now. You don't have to think about it like that. Like, even with Avidnote, we're avoiding taking money from Sweden right now because we're getting offers from Silicon Valley for for which evaluations that Sweden can't match either. So I think, you know, people need to move out of that thing that the mentality that the reason that they're not making it is because there's not an entire ecosystem for this right now in Bosnia and Herzegovina. That's not what's missing right now. It's the know-how, I feel. And we want Zenda to be a starting point for that know-how. Obviously, we need to learn it internally ourselves. That's why I'm saying that for me to be able to tell anybody anything about creating a a SaaS uh, uh, product, I need to have gone through that process. At least that's my mentality always in life. Uh, Everybody tries to avoid that imposter syndrome, and that's my way of avoiding it. All right, let let me create one first, and uh, then let's see how we can distribute that knowledge as much as possible amongst the people in our company. So let's say you're bootstrapping your own company, and at the same time, you notice that you kind of need to bootstrap the community in Bosnia and Herzegovina, let's say. (laughs) Yeah, very much. I mean, it's... Quite honestly, it's all about the community in the end. I mean, the vision is much broader than Zendev. What we want to show to our youth here is that, you know, you you can make things that change the world from here in Bosnia and Herzegovina. You don't have to move abroad because we, like all of the Balkans, we are in that situation that we have mass immigration right now. 30% of the people have left the country since 2010. And I think, you know, this is one way to alleviate that process that I think a lot of really good, talented people hit a ceiling in their careers in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It doesn't have to necessarily do only with the financial, like a lot of the senior developers in Bosnia and Herzegovina are, you know, moving towards really great salaries, especially the last few years, you know, versus the actual cost of living in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's other things that are moving them abroad. It's, you know, the, the opportunity for the next level of career growth, because what we were talking about earlier, you know, they're just being sold as consultants. And at some point, maybe you feel like, you know, I, I, I want to do something more than that. And yeah, that, that's our way of like contributing to the um, culture of creating products in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Sanat, thank you for your energy and uh, your experiences. I would also like to thank everybody who listened to us till the end and good luck. It was an absolute pleasure, Rush, and uh, we'll stay in touch. And thank you to everybody, like you said, who spent the time here to listen to us <laughs> talk for an hour. I had a lot of fun, so I hope other people enjoyed it as well. Thank you. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And do not forget to tell your friends about it. I would really appreciate if you tell me which entrepreneur would you like me to interview next. Just email me at podcast at bootstrapentrepreneurs.eu. The episode show notes are available on www.bootstrapentrepreneurs.eu. See you next week.